Are you looking for organizations that support essential workers? Our friends at Descent Pins have made it easy. Just visit descentpins.com essential. That's D-I-S-S-E-N-T-P-I-N-S dot com slash essential. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. If you've spent the lockdown in a major city, you've probably heard more birdsong than usual. Yet another subtle, disorienting facet of shutting down the economy and remaining indoors. But the birds aren't triumphantly showboating now that there is less noise from people. In fact, they're singing more quietly because there's no ambient din. Their songs only seem louder to us because we're able to notice them. This misperception is a reminder of how limited an anthropocentric worldview is. But it also shows us that how we interact with the natural world has consequences with varying levels of severity. In the July issue, William Atkins writes about one of the defining features of the Irish landscape, bogs. Peat has been used as a fuel source for thousands of years, but its industrial extraction has been disastrous to the environment in terms of carbon emissions and the immense toll taken on the bogs themselves. I spoke with Atkins about these strange, alluring places, which figure so greatly in the Irish imaginary and the Irish government's decision to end peat extraction. This is a really beautiful piece, and it touches on so many different things, and it's quite uh, lyrical. But for those who haven't read it yet and who haven't been to a bog in Ireland. What is it like to be there? I mean, the sights and the sounds and the flora and the fauna, if you could just like put us in a bog state of mind. Sure. Well, I mean, I think the first thing to say is when we talk about bogs in Ireland, we need to think about a few a few different categories and subcategories. Um, first, there are, there are two kinds of natural bog. So there's the blanket bog, which tends to occur in, in upland areas along the western seaboard mostly, tends to be quite shallow, inaccessible, and therefore has not been industrially exploited as a, as a fuel resource. And then there are the deep raised bogs, so-called, that uh, dominate the Midlands west of Dublin, which is the heartland of, of um, industrial excavation of peat and the heartland of this story. And there are very few pristine active untouched bogs left in Ireland or indeed in in the world. Most of these have been damaged either by draining for agriculture or extraction uh, of peat for fuel, either on a domestic or an industrial scale. Um, But a natural bog for me is perhaps the closest we come in Europe to a desert landscape, by which I don't mean at all that it's dead (laughs) and it certainly isn't dry, but just that in its openness, its kind of spaciousness, its absence of borders, it gives us a kind of a glimpse, not just of wilderness or of somewhere that isn't ruled by human beings, but something, some kind of transcendence. That's my experience of these, these landscapes. They're made out of peat, which is basically thousands of years worth of sodden, dead plant matter accumulated. And they're defined by their wetness. So their chief building block is this stuff called sphagnum moss, this deep green, 
tangled, acid and wet-loving plant. But the, the surface of the bog is also home to heather, to lichens, to fungi, to cotton grass, to this tiny carnivorous plant called the sundew, uh, and to dozens of species of butterfly and moth and insect, as well as birds like um, the curlew, for example. So they're flat, they're treeless, they're wind-scoured, they're soggy enough that you have to constantly watch your footing as you walk across them. And this breeds a very close attention to their textures and substance because you're constantly looking at your, mm. your feet. And they're highly exposed places, exposed to wind and to rain and, and to the sun. So in the winter, you're at risk of getting wet and cold. And in the summer, you're at risk of getting burnt. So in other words, this is all to say, really, they're places that we have historically avoided. So that's the, the kind of living, the active bog, which is extracting carbon from the atmosphere as it, its constituent plants die and, and decompose. And we'll, we'll come on to, to carbon. But then there's the excavated or the harvested or the mined bog. Mm. Uh, and that's an entirely different environment from an actual bog. So an excavated bog, an industrial excavated bog of the kind I, I write about in this piece, it, they're some of the worst places I've been on the planet. Um, <laughs> you, you're, you, I don't know if you're, you're familiar with this experience of your mind and your body somehow know instinctively when they're, they're confronted with a, a, an active environmental criminality. And these are places that have been really profoundly damaged. Mm. So picture uh, an endless row of mile-long, two-mile-long runways of black, scoured peat. So no vegetation, uh, no birdsong, often partly flooded with rainwater. So as I was saying, a kind of a wet, black desert, mm. but uh, not living in the way that a desert often is living, um, but really a dead place. So they, th those excavated bogs in the Midlands of Ireland, they they made me think of two places. The first was the drained bed of the, the Aral Sea in Kazakhstan, which was destroyed by the Soviet Union in the, in the 60s and 70s. And the second was a nuclear test zone in the Australian desert. I mean, they are, they are dead places. They're kind of horrifying places in lots of ways. And so what I wanted to do partly with this story was to set the living bog, that, that kind of place of ecological abundance and richness for all its sparsity and harshness, set that living place against the the kind of the, the the moonscape or desert of of the excavated bog right and speaking of watching your footing all of the strange objects that have been retrieved from bogs that were mummified in the peat sometimes for thousands of years and yeah. one of the more remarkable cases is old krogan man a body discovered near lullymore in 2003 can you tell us more about him in terms of archaeological or religious terms? Sure. Old Krogan Man um, was excavated from a private peat digging, uh, as you say, not far from Lullymore in the, in the Irish Midlands. And he, he's not unique by any means. Ancient human remains have been dug up and continue to be dug up periodically from islands bogs. It's in the nature of peat that it, it preserves organic matter that falls into it. So one of the challenges, for example, that peat diggers face uh, is the abundance of this stuff called bogwood. And this is um, bowls and trunks and branches of trees that were buried in or consumed by the bog sometimes thousands of years ago. 
but haven't rotted down because of the kind of preservative nature of of uh, of peat and they have to be removed before the peat can be extracted right. um, just like a but desert. other items uh well quite yeah i guess so yeah yeah and other items i mean as well as you say um leather shoes bibles ancient casks of butter that might be centuries old that are still fresh enough to be eaten just about um and as you say bodies as well uh and these are usually so the thinking goes usually victims of sacrifice a lot of these bog bodies as they're called have been unearthed in in marginal regions borderlands between adjoining ancient kingdoms so in a sense the bog in ireland it's always been a kind of no man's land a place outside the quotidian the every the every day and i think i say in this piece it's it, they're places where uh, where a life can be made to to disappear they're they're marginal they've always been marginal and they continue to be marginal in one way or another and it's not really known how oh, old krogan man died um His others nipples have were been cut found off. Garotted. Yeah, I mean, that may have, may have done it. I was like, well, okay, geez. <laughs> well, and I think there's some question as to whether that was before or after death. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they had the state pathologist examine his corpse, um, and, and it could be seen that he'd, he'd suffered these injuries to his arms and his torso. And as you say, both nipples had been sliced off. Um, and you can go and visit him, as I did, and, and some other bog bodies in, in one of the museums in Dublin. And he's He's incredibly intact still. I mean, he's he's lost his legs and and uh, and I think part of his arm. I think. Mm-hmm. But I went there last year, and there was this moment when I was examining his hands, for example. And you can really get quite close. He's in this sort of vitrine in a sort of darkened cubicle, mm-hmm. and I realised that his his body was so well preserved that I could make out well not only make out his pores in his skin, but make out his fingerprints. And there was this moment when there were, it felt kind of inappropriate to be gawping at him in this way. You know, this is a public exhibition right. because you realise that this was a person with a life and a name who was here because he'd undergone this great suffering. So there, there's that kind of question of how long has to pass before it's um, seemly, if you like, to, to, to look on another person's dead body. But I, I also write a bit about Seamus Heaney, the, the, the great poet who I, I talk about as a kind of laureate of the bog and he wrote this wonderful series of poems about bog bodies in in northern europe as well as in in ireland and um, i remember he was writing during during the troubles and so these bog bodies functioned for him as a as a kind of emblem of the the persistence uh, or the continuity of social political community violence um i can read a bit from one of his if, if you want me to oh yes um, please I won't read, it's, it's a longish poem, so I'll just read a little bit, but it's, it's called Punishment. And he goes, I can see her drowned body in the bog, the weighing stone, the floating rods and boughs. And then a bit later in the poem, he goes on, I who have stood dumb when your betraying sisters called in tar, wept by the railings, who would connive in civilised outrage, yet understand the exact and tribal intimate revenge. And so that that's that connection between the deep, deep past and the and, and the present. Um, and that's something that one becomes very conscious of in, in Bogland and Peatland because of their, their sort of timelessness and their preservative nature and their, their ability to almost um, 
what's the word, halt time in a sense. Mm. Well, you just read some great Shamazini and you quote a number of writers and poets on the subject. So what is your favorite literary treatment of Boggs? Because they are such a deep presence in Irish literature. Yeah, it's true. I mean, there's Heaney, of course, and 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 so many others. I mean, in Irish as well as English, it's worth mm-hmm. stressing. Um, as a passer through, as a kind of tourist, which is what I I was and what I invariably am when I'm writing, I kept coming back to Tim Robinson, mm-hmm. who's one of the the world's great chroniclers of place, I think, um, and, and died sadly in, in in April. He was based for many years in Roundston, which is in Connemara in the in the west of Ireland. And and his writing about that region's bogs, which are those blanket bogs I mentioned earlier on, is um is pretty unsurpassed. Uh, Milkweed Editions have recently published a new edition of the first in his Connemara trilogy, which is called Listening to the Wind. And it's been a, a touchstone for me for a long while. But um, I'll read you a bit from it to give you a sense of the kind of richness and precision. And, and this is a bit about... Um, about his local bog. And he writes, a bog is its own diary. Its mode of being is preservation of its past. The current page is the brightest and fullest, but whatever grows and dies on the surface together with whatever is blown into it from neighboring areas will be pickled in the acidic waters, buried under the remains of future years growth and added to the layered record. And he goes on, Our wastelands are so beautiful and so tender, we wonder if we should enter them at all. Should we stand here discussing the origins of the bog, knowing that a footprint in sphagnum moss, that stuff I mentioned earlier, Mm. lasts a year or more, that the tuft of lichen we crush unseeingly has taken decades to grow, sometimes when a snipe leaps up from under my feet and goes panicking up the sky, I am appalled at my own presence in a place so old and slow and long-suffering as Roundstone Bog. And it occurs to me, actually, that that idea of a place that's old and slow and long-suffering um, is really is really um, resonant in terms of um, some of the places I saw when I was researching this piece. Hmm. And peat the use of peat as a fuel, just sort of throwing it on the fire and the smell that comes from it and the warmth and the uniqueness of that is a huge part of Irish national identity. And Mm -hmm. for most of history, bogs have been, they are essentially antithetical to Western ideas of what land is supposed to be because you can't grow crops on it. You can't develop on it, build a house or whatever. And so making them useful you know as you've alluded to it's kind of decimated the the ecosystem of the bog and also there are these massive carbon emissions but then those contradictions and how bogs are at once wild and like a no man's land as you were saying and they can also be used for they were have been used as a form of economic self-sufficiency make Mm -hmm. them really fascinating Mm -hmm. so i guess yeah yeah I mean that always that that fascinating to me is that relationship between the kind of the the margins and the center um mm. in geographical terms but also in power terms. I mean the first thing to kind of know about Ireland is it has very little woodland, very little timber for um for historical reasons and also very little coal. So Bordnamona the the peat board is a it's a semi state owned company 
and was established by the the Irish government after the Second World War, and and really in response to the abstraction of coal imports from from Britain mm. to exploit peat bogs as a national fuel resource and to supply a network of, of power stations, electricity power stations. Um, during the oil crisis of the 70s, for instance, peat accounted for something like 40% of the country's electricity. And so it came to represent a certain degree, as you say, of national self-sufficiency in Ireland, of economic sovereignty. Um, but for rural Ireland, where, as I said, there was, there was little timber available for fuel, the bogs and the peat that came from them had always been a, a vital source of, of fuel for heating and cooking. And so, like every landscape in a way, these, these apparently marginal, difficult places are, are deeply political. Um, during British rule, certainly, they, they, they represented political and economic sovereignty to some extent, some kind of freedom. And added to that, when Bordnamona arrived in the Midlands after the war, it brought long-term and dependable employment to a region that, that, had, that had always been economically marginal, precisely because its bogginess, as you were saying, made, made uh, conventional agriculture so difficult. We should probably discuss Bordnamona because it's essential to this piece, and it actually recently announced that they were suspending all peat harvesting for the immediate future. So could you talk about how it was formed sure. and what are its plans for the future, which include a title I just love, Enhanced Peatland Rehabilitation Scheme. So, <laughs> Yeah. Um, I mean, it was funny. I think that pretty much the day this thing was, this piece was um, was published online, at, at least, Bordnamona announced that they were suspending peat harvesting uh, for the immediate future, and I think probably uh, indefinitely. Uh, peat harvesting of all sorts, which is a kind of radical change for the Midlands. Um, the issue with peat extraction in global uh, environmental terms is, is that healthy peat bogs actively remove carbon from the atmosphere in huge quantities. So in other words, they moderate the effects of, of global warming mm -hmm. and climate breakdown. When they're drained or, or excavated, uh, so they might be drained for, for agricultural use or excavated for um, the extraction of peat for fuel, they become a carbon source. And added to this, of course, there are those emissions that are caused by burning the stuff when it's, when it's extracted and taken to the power stations. And then, of course, which is often forgotten, the sheer ecological value of the bogs in their own right. Remember, some of these places are literally thousands of years old and the lowest layer of peat, maybe 10, maybe even 15 feet beneath the surface you're walking on, could predate the, the birth of Christ by thousands of years, maybe 6,000 years. So these are incredibly precious environments in their own right. So the government turnaround is, is, is partly, well, not a turnaround, it's partly the, the culmination of years of pressure from environmental groups like Friends of the Irish Environment and, and Friends of the Earth Island um, to abandon peat excavation in all its forms. But I also think that Bordnamona and the government themselves recognised some considerable time ago, a long while ago, I think, that peat was not really viable in the in the mid to long term as a fuel mm. and what has happened though i think is that the intended kind of slow piecemeal abandonment of peat excavation and the peat industry has had to happen 
far more quickly than anyone planned. Their hand was 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 kind of forced. Ireland has a pretty bad record on carbon emissions. It's it's repeatedly missed its targets under EU emissions agreements. And I think even many of the the the, the men I met who are working on the bogs, they recognise and have recognised for a while that it's no longer sustainable. Mm. And for many of them, it has already meant redundancy. Um, it's quite an elderly workforce. For others, it's going to mean redeployment. Um, so Borden and Mona is... is is active in in kind of renewable energy sources, in retrofitting the housing stock in the Midlands and and, and in Ireland more widely to to improve fuel efficiency, and in what is called re-wetting, uh, mm. re-wetting of excavated bogs, which is simply a case of allowing them to become wetlands, and this means they cease to emit carbon and they're they're far more attractive to to wildlife. What won't happen, though, as a result of that re-wetting, at least for thousands of years, is that they will become bogs again. So these these ancient bogs, in terms of any kind of human notion of, of, of time, are really gone forever. And it's worth noting as an addendum that, that while Borden Amona has stopped digging, uh, apparently for good, there are still hundreds of private contractors who are able to drain and extract people from bogs all over Ireland and the damage they're doing on a kind of ecological local basis but also of course in terms of emissions um, to Ireland's bogs is is as great as that done by Borden and Mona so as a problem uh, an environmental issue an ecological issue a, a, a local issue that remains quite significant. And why is that? Is it just because the, the bogs are located on private land or uh, in some cases they will be in some cases there will be traditional rights of uh, common rights rights of turbary as it's known to extract peat from those bogs um, there are still some families who will who will harvest peat for their own hearth and for their own heating but yeah I mean a combination of private private land a often a uh, a lack of confidence in it who exactly owns that land anyway but also there's quite a lot of common land persisting, which will be the rights to which will be owned by um, particular households ancestrally. Mm. And the, the the government has, I don't know, has no intention of sort of intervening in those instances when it is on a larger scale, or is it kind of tricky? <laughs> yeah, I think it has every intention of intervening in due course, but I think it's much more complicated because there are so many parties involved. Uh, those private bogs are contested in a way that is even more complex than than the, the bogs owned by um, Board and Amona. And one of the uh, characteristics of, of bogland is that by its nature, it's isolated. And again, I mean, thinking of deserts, they're hard places to police. The, the jurisdiction there is, is challenging. There are few witnesses in these places. And so... One of the reasons environments like Bogland can easily be exploited or damaged or or illegally um, excavated is that there's no one there to say, don't do that. Right. In the last paragraph of the piece, you write, quote, nobody ever believed the peat was deathless or that its removal at an industrial scale was anything less than violence done to the land and the country's strictly limited Irish patrimony. But even despoliation can look like an act of largesse in certain circumstances, end quote. 
Similarly, after reading your piece, one could say that this is a case where a necessary, if belated, attempt at conservation can look like an act of disenfranchisement and abandonment. Do you see the peat industry as a harbinger of a more widespread pattern as governments increasingly try to reckon with climate change by placing limits on these extractive industries? And is there a way for governments to avoid these ripple effects, like with the, as you're talking about, lots of, mm. you know, redundancies and layoffs? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think disenfranchisement and abandonment is, is unfortunately, is, is what many former board and owner employees feel has happened. Um, and it derives, I think, from a kind of, well, a sort of innate universal political improvidence, right? The, the, the failure we've seen all across the world, uh, and none of us are, are, are innocent of this, to, to contend with the reality of climate breakdown. Right. But, but a stage has been reached, I think, this is my sense, where, and actually, this is a sense that was really intensified by, by by my time in, in 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 the Midlands, whether we can confess it to ourselves or not, the crisis is on us. It's upon us, mm-hmm. and so we're all panicking. And that includes governments. It even includes corporations. I think who are beginning to to understand that the crisis is not short term or local, that it's global, that it's 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 existential. And what we're seeing, I think, is poli- chiefly political panic, which of course is also corporate panic. Mm born of fear uh, and the victims of this are are local as well as global um it's funny i i i started to equate the, those black deserts i was talking about those excavated peat bogs with the wider climate crisis um and and a bit like that the kind of the drained rlc i mentioned or the, the nuclear test grounds in australia those places they feel like a kind of warning you know this is this is what awaits us silence and stillness an absence of birdsong you know it's a kind of hell on earth yeah i mean it is i don't know it's it's hard to imagine something like this being pulled off in the united states so good on the irish government <laughs> yeah i and i share i share that sentiment actually it's it's um it's been too long coming it's been done badly but thank god it's happening yeah. You recently retweeted an op-ed by the travel writer Henry Wismayer in the Washington Post, which, as you summarized in the tweet, is about, quote, travel and travel writing as an extractive activity, end quote. Wismayer talks about how environmentally destructive the travel industry has become, its role in helping spread COVID-19, and the idea that the pandemic might force us to reconnect with the pleasures of staying put. As someone who's done a great deal of writing about both travel and extractive industries, what would you say about the connection between those two things? Has the requirement to stay put led you to any new thoughts about travel? Mm. Yeah, it's a great piece by Henry Wismayer. Um, yeah, I was reading about um, the Roman poet Ovid recently for some, some research I'm doing for a, for a book I'm, I'm working on. And he was exiled from Rome to the Black Sea about two thousand years ago. And I, I, I discovered there's a there's this theory that, like, which came to light in the eighties, I think, this theory that he actually Ovid was never exiled at all, and instead he was safe at home in Rome, and that all these great exile poems uh, that have come down to us were only ever intended to be read as kind of allegories of of, of exile, and it's it's kind of nonsense, 
obviously. But it, it, it got me thinking about why we travel, what we learn from the experience of travel, what we might bring back, all of which are, are it occurs to me, you know, notions of extraction in one way or another. Mm. But why bother to travel, in other words? Um, and I think travel writing is, is or the writing about journeying, about place, about encounter is being confronted as we speak with its own, uh, as Wismer does in, in, in his piece, is being confronted with its own historical complicities. And there are loads of exceptions, of course, but but in its modern form, at least, travel writing is white, it's male, it's privileged, it's mm-hmm. Anglophone. And so there's the question of representation, of course. It's partly why, as a form, it's become slightly moribund, in my view. Yeah. Um, that kind of lack of diversity of voices and perspectives, the sense of it having become a, a kind of limited, closed ecosystem. But the problem also goes deeper, I think, that travel writing in many ways has been a a fundamentally kind of colonialist or post-colonialist practice. Oh, very much, yes. This kind of seeing man, the man of the world, and I say man advisedly, (laughs) standing on his his hotel balcony and surveying the world with, with, with a kind of absolute dominance. And so... Yeah, that's that's the sense in which I meant extractive. Mm. The idea that the world's there for for the taking. There's that question of uh, Elizabeth Bishop's: Should we have stayed at home and thought of here? And I kind of increasingly feel like the answer is yes. But I also <laughs> I also think it's really it's possible. It ought to be possible to allow yourself to be to be a stranger somewhere, to be an exile, and then to go out into the world in a, in a spirit of humility and generosity. And to write about that experience in, in a way that, that well, you know, honours the communities of those places, the human and non-human communities, honours their politics and their histories. Right. And that, obviously, needless to say, you know, I'm, I'm speaking as, a, as an English man, that goes for the Irish Midlands as much as anywhere else. Right. Yeah, I think what you said, humility, is kind of the key here because, you know, if you've yeah. gone on, like, say a group vacation some people Mm. are clearly there only seeing what they want to see Mm -hmm. and being confirmed in their beliefs kind of being you know oh yeah archaeologists don't know how these pyramids were built so uh must be aliens (laughs) that that sort of wildly racist nonsense that is just it's unfair and there's a kind of in some ways there's, there's an echo of that 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 tendency in the writing about travel as well. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's, I kind of, you know, I think you can, you can, there may be a place for a kind of travel literature, almost a, a literature of atonement, you know, mm-hmm. I sometimes feel that. But yeah, I don't, does that answer your question, Violet? I, oh, yeah. it's, it's, it's rather on travel writing rather than on, rather than on tourism. But um, Oh, yeah, yeah. No, so I that's mean, because another, it... another can of worms oh totally yeah exactly i mean but it it certainly connects because again who is telling the story what are what perhaps are they looking for that you may not find because you're a woman you're black you're what you know like whatever your identity is it it Mm, may not be available to you so yeah i appreciate humility like i said i think humility is key but yeah yeah absolutely is there anything else you wanted to talk about I 
I think probably we, and I was glad to get to mention Tim Robinson, actually, you know, he was kind of a presiding spirit on this thing. So, <laughs> so have you come across him by any chance? No. Do no. you know his work? No. I, I can't recommend it enough. Um, yeah, Milkweed have just done this new issue of, of one of his, his great Connemara books. And it's, um, yeah, he's sort of transformative writer. He's really, really worth seeking out in terms of, I mean, speaking of kind of tourism as 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 really the opposite of a tourist, somebody who who sat and dwelt and looked very, very carefully and very closely and thought very deeply and yeah, well kind of honored the place that he was writing about. Yeah, he's he's um really important figure, I think. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this. This was lovely to talk to you no it's been a pleasure it's been i haven't really kind of thought about the process of writing the thing so it's nice to have an opportunity to to uh to do that yeah you've been listening to the harper's magazine podcast produced by violet luca and andrew blevins the music is cut and shoot by febrifuge harper's magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in america exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.